Hello and welcome to Artbox. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I sit down with Joshua Gamma after one of his radio shows at the Eden Hotel. Joshua is a curator, designer, artist, DJ, and musician. We talk about his past shows he curated, his love of music, and his path into the arts. So with that, sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Thank you for doing this, by the way, and thank, thank you, you actually for doing this uh, right after you did a, show, a radio show. Right, so. so my voice is all worn out. It's all <laughs> worn out, you know, it's like, you know, I had to put the blanket on you to cool you right. off and yeah, put yeah, you yeah. in the, in the tub of James Brown, yeah. <laughs> I actually liked your show. That was a good show. Thank you. And uh, I learned the difference between Zydeco and Cajun music. And Cajun, so yeah. that I learned something today. Important distinction. Yes, it was a very important a distinction. A subtle distinction. Yeah, because I bet you if I had gone to a place in somewhere in like Baton Rouge or, or anywhere else, or New Orleans, I'm sure that I would have been skewered if if I got in the back. I'm not sure that people in Louisiana know the difference. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if, they, you know, if you play Zydeco or you play Cajun music, you know the difference. But if you're just like some Cajun dude, you're just like, yeah, I don't know. It's music. It's good. <laughs> it sounds good to me. Yeah, I like it. So how did you get your your path with art and music and music to art. Right, right. Well, yeah, you were saying that you assumed that I was a musician that became interested in art, but it's it's actually kind of the opposite. I was an artist who became interested in music. I mean, both were around all the time when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and I, specifically drawing, I don't remember when I started drawing. I just always drew. And I think it kind of was just like when I was a kid, that's what I did instead of like having a journal or something. I just like constantly drew. I was really into like Mad Magazine and like Looney Tunes and, you know, but also my dad was in the military and we moved around a lot. And I think it was also kind of a way for me to process like, oh, this is what this place is about. So I'm going to draw like we lived in Monterey, California, and I would draw like the Spanish missions and the coastline. And I was in interested in like sea creatures. And I would draw different fish and stuff like that. And then when we moved to Louisiana, like we mentioned earlier, it's Louisiana's another planet, yeah. you know, compared to the rest of the United States. It literally is. Another yeah. Planet, yeah. <laughs> so I think our and drawing specifically at that time was always a way that I was kind of like processing things and thinking through the world. But both of my parents are huge music fans. My mom, her dad's family is from Texas, so country music was always a big part of my growing up. Um, she's also interested in a lot of like classic soul music. She introduced me to like, you know, Al Green and Marvin Gaye and stuff like that. And then my dad is really into jazz and he's really into like psychedelic rock too, you know. So, you know, huge well, Jimi Hendrix ask, fan. Yeah. Ask about that. So, yeah. was it Texas psychedelic rock or uh, was it California? Because during those days there was a distinction. Oh, there's a huge distinction. And uh, so my dad grew up in LA. Okay. Um, so, for him, it was, I mean, Hendrix, but also, you know, The Doors right. and Jefferson Airplane and The Birds and The Beach Boys. And yeah, that was the stuff my dad was into for sure but then of course we moved to texas well not of course people don't know that i yeah, yeah i'm yeah, telling I, you now we know that <laughs> um we moved to texas when i was in high school and then i went to college in austin so when you live in austin you learn the truth about the history of psychedelic rock which yes, is that the do. 13th floor elevators invented it and you know the legend is that the 13th floor elevators had a residency at the avalon ballroom chet helm from uh, the family dog brought them up, you know, with Janis Joplin. And sort of the, the legend is that the people in the audience in those early shows, the people that would become the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, and they were kind of folkies. And they were there in the audience 
watching these Texas dudes freak out and, <laughs> yeah. you know, preach the, the gospel of LSD. And, you know, so that's how the Texans see it. And I tend to, tend Actually, to yeah, I kind of subscribe to that history too. Cause that's, you know, I, I grew up in Florida. So, ah, yeah. you know, there's that you kind of learn that through Texans you know, totally, yeah. or you get beaten up. So yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I love it all. I mean, I love all the San Francisco stuff as well. Well, San Francisco stuff is, was it, it is San Francisco. Speaking of other planets, you mm -hmm. know, which I, I love San Francisco. Uh, so I wanted to ask, so you grew up at a very influential age in, Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. a very, very awesome music scene in totally. general, yeah. you know, so you could not have lived there unless you were in a band. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, a it's, it's part a of a requirement. Yeah. It's part of the Austin dream. You yeah. know, you have to be a, a barista <laughs> and you have to be unemployed for a while. You have to uh, work in a food truck. I did both of those things and you have to be in a punk band. Or a country band. Well, country yeah. or punk, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I was in a punk band. You were in a punk band, so you went down that path. Oh, two of them. Well, so which, which bands that you were in that were... I mean, uh, we were talking earlier about the Mole People. The Mole right. People was the big project. The Mole okay. People was like the... Man, we were around for about five years. And it actually, to bring it full circle back to radio, it kind of grew out of radio. So I was a DJ at KVRX, which is like the, um, the college radio station at the University of Texas. Um, and I had a psychedelic, like a Texas psychedelic rock show, as you do. Of um, course. Yeah. But uh, a lot of it was like we graduated and all of a sudden it's like, I'm not allowed to have a radio show anymore. Like, I just loved that outlet and it had become a big part of my life over the course of college. And I was just like, well, how, how can I like invent an excuse to still hang out with these people and like share interesting music and not be creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the mole people kind of grew out of that. It was actually me. It's also like when I look back at it, kind of an early curatorial project hmm. where I was really looking at different DJs at the station and being like, I really like what this guy does. And I really like this person's taste. So the mole people really kind of grew out of me kind of gathering people I knew had good taste because I couldn't really play much. You know, I, I was in a, in the marching band in Louisiana as a kid. So yeah, I, I play saxophone, but I'm not like good at it. And I, you know, I can play enough guitar to kind of like figure out a riff and be like, ah, that's could be something. I don't know. But I'm not like, like going to go up there with an acoustic guitar and play by myself. Like I'm, that's just not me. I'm just, I'm just not that disciplined in that way. Yeah. Um, but I've always been kind of theatrical <laughs> and I've always like, uh, been comfortable with my voice. And, you know, I used to sing in church and stuff like that as a kid. And I was just like, I, I, I bet I could sing. You know, so I just kind of like brought some friends together and was like, let's just like listen to records and loosely let's kind of base the concept around psychedelic garage rock and Texas garage rock. And that's kind of the stuff we, that we were listening to. And a lot of us at the time were really into soul music and James Brown and that kind of stuff. So, you know, kind of like pulling from that kind of like raw Texas R&B influenced garage rock kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, we'll play some friends like barbecues, you know, like we'll be in the back, you know, we'll be in the backyard, you know, by the pool and, you know, just play a couple like terrible covers or whatever. And, you yeah. know, in, in early days, it was pretty much all just garage rock covers. And but somewhere along the line, we got kind of good. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, Austin's a weird place to play music. It's a great place to start a band because there's just so many opportunities to play. And there's so many great bands that are like open for us, you know. But after a while, you start to um, kind of like blend in to everything else. So it's yeah. kind of hard to stand out. Yeah. There's all sorts of politics in the music scene that I won't get into. But, but yeah, there was definitely like a moment where we had some momentum and we were playing a ton. 
and we were recording uh, we recorded a couple eps we recorded an, an album uh, like a full-length album that got really well reviewed and but i think after a while we were just kind of like all starting to kind of grow up a little bit and be really tired and <laughs> not really get the um accolades that we thought we deserved or i don't know there was you know it's it what, what happens in bands, you know, where but, you... So yeah. the music is still survives, right? Like, is yeah. it on Bandcamp? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's on Bandcamp. Oh, okay, yeah. so people yeah. need to go to Bandcamp and find Absolutely, more yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you said you were in another project. What was that project? That was actually when I decided that I was going to move to Maryland for grad school at MICA. Me and the former bass player of the Mole People had been kind of toying around with the idea of starting another band for a couple of years after the Mole People kind of fell apart. And, you know, we... We kind of wanted to go back to some of the early days of the mole people where it was just like all about fun yeah. um, and less taking itself so seriously. So we were like, oh, man, I'm moving. We just let's just start a band and it, it needs to be fun. It needs to be something we could do fast. Like it could be like a two month long project. So like hard, fast, fun. What is it going to be? Oh, hardcore punk, of course. So I knew I was moving to the D.C. area. So we kind of did like kind of a classic D.C. style hardcore band. And well, yeah, I was going to yeah. say that as, as one does. Yeah. Yeah. And we uh, we played four shows. We <laughs> recorded a demo that's pretty good. I kind of had to reteach myself how to sing because it was a totally different way of singing than, you know, in the mole people. I kind of did this like kind of high pitched kind of Iggy Pop meets James Brown sort of right. screechy, kind of, yeah. you know, like bellowy thing that, you know, when I tried to sing like that on a hardcore song, like it was just like, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, you'd kill your vocal cords. Yeah. Out. So I had to kind of like teach myself how to like growl from the gut. It was fun. <laughs> it was really fun. You know, some, some of those guys actually yeah. get vocal coaches. Oh, yeah. I could see. Yeah. I was shocked, but it does make sense because you can really screw up your vocal Oh, yeah. Well. I bet. So where does the art tie into all of this? Yeah. Like I said earlier, I had always drawn and I had always kind of like made things. Um, so all throughout like elementary school, high school, when we moved to, I feel like when I was in Louisiana, there weren't a ton of outlets for my visual art just because we lived in a really small town. We lived in this town, Morgan City. I took some painting lessons with a local painter there, but there just weren't a lot of opportunities to like really get into art. So really it was when we moved to Houston, I started taking art classes and that's where I really started to get into more kind of contemporary art or kind of more modern art. And, you know, I got really into like Robert Rauschenberg and, oh, right. you know, so anyway, and it was kind of in high school that I kind of started to see like, oh, people do this for a living. <laughs> like my, my uh, teacher was a working artist and was like, oh, this is like a thing that you can do. So I, I studied art in, in college. Also another kind of weird wrench in my story is, you know, my dad was in the Coast Guard and, you know, when we were, when we were young, we didn't have a lot of money. My dad was just like a, an enlisted person in the Coast Guard, didn't have a lot of my money. My mom didn't work. Neither of them had gone to college. They didn't really save any money for me to go to college. And yeah. so when I was always a really smart kid and I always, you know, I, I kind of came up in that generation of like, you go to college. Like if you're smart, you go to college. That's like what you do. And we just didn't know how to pay for it. And my parents just <laughs> didn't know how to give me advice. They didn't know how to tell me to apply for scholarships. And, right. well, you know, yeah. So I just financial aid. Yeah. 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 So I, I didn't really have a lot of um, guidance and I kind of just had to figure it out for myself. And so this was pre Iraq war. So I graduated in 2002. So it was after 9-11, but pre-Iraq war. And at the time, the Texas National Guard was having like a 100% tuition reimbursement program. So I was like, oh, I, 
I could do that. That's easy, right? Yeah. Then, you know, well, there's a hurricane. I'll be in Galveston stacking sandbags. Or, you know, and you and, and one of the things that was really happening a lot at that time is the National Guard was doing kind of like security at airports and stuff like that. So I kind of looked at it as almost like community service. Of course, a year into my time, the Iraq War happened, and the National Guard started getting pulled extensively, extensively and, and yeah. sent to to war. Yeah, I kind of got myself in a pickle there. <laughs> but all, the, all this to say, when I started to realize that I was going to have to go through some hell in order to pay for college, I was like, I'm going to do something I love. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to... I mean, there, there were other things I was toying with. I, I was toying around with the idea of like environmental science and, and architecture. And, but um, once I realized that like... I'm going to have to be in the military <laughs> when, when it kind of be, started to become real. Yeah. I, I decided to study art because, you know, they'll, they'll pay for it. So I might as well do something I totally love. Yeah. I'm um, glad you went yeah. down that path. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I ended up studying art and design both kind of partially because of being in the military. I was kind of pulled out of school a lot. So over the years, I kind of ended up taking a lot of art and design classes. And before I knew it, I had two degrees. So it worked yeah, out you well. You just, just woke yeah. up like, oh wait, how did I get those two degrees? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was one of those things where like the design program was very structured. Yeah. And I would come, like when I came back from Afghanistan, it wasn't at the right time of the semester to like catch up to where I was. Yeah. So I ended up just taking a bunch of like printmaking classes just to kind of fill space. And before I knew it, I was like, I'm kind of close to having an art degree as well. So might as well do both. Yeah. Um, and the way it was structured at uh, the University of Texas at the time is, the core courses for like design and art are the same. Um, yeah, pretty much they should be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like uh, yeah, where I went to school, we had basically design classes mm -hmm. at the Wazoo. So you know, mm -hmm. like we had one semester where we just learned design terms. That's all we mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like uh, decor history, which I had to. Uh, that was just all about memorization, pure memorization, yeah. <laughs> and just picking out little details. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, gosh, you give me nightmares now. I, I, yeah, I guess I kind of wanted to ask this question. So, um, so I usually ask a little later. So then what is your philosophy then and your aesthetics about art? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think because of the fact that my, because my artistic journey has involved a lot of visual things, you know, graphic design. Um, I mean, the design program I did was um, multi-genre it was you know we made furniture we did typeface we designed typefaces we designed uh, magazine layouts we did some web design and it was kind of more about like design as as problem solving so i've always kind of like had this idea that visual approaches to things you can approach them in, in all sorts of different ways like you yeah. you can you know design an event you can design a game you can design like a, an interaction a dinner party you know like all these things can be design but then also coming from background of like drawing and painting and so that was always a big thing i did so um and then i was a, a dj at a radio station and then i was in a band and you know so all these things to me all kind of made sense together and i think at some point i started especially like kind of towards the end of my time in undergrad started to realize really what i'm interested in is sort of the interactions of people and and cultures you know, I started to get interested in like relational aesthetics and participatory art and that sort of thing. And, and, but also kind of interest in curating and like the idea of like, I can take an object that's a cultural object and, and have it with maybe something that's more like traditionally contemporary art or like encourage like a contemporary artist to work in a vernacular form. And I think especially like my time in Louisiana, the art there is vernacular, you yeah. know, it's, it's like hand painted signs, it's jazz musicians on the street 
you know, I remember when I was maybe like 10 or 11 years old, I went to a, a voodoo art show and it just like blew my mind. It was like, oh, this, this is total, this is art. And, this, and that's, and it's amazing. And it's just like, you know, it's toys and candles and alligator heads, and, you yeah. know? So I think one of the things that I've always really been interested in is, is sort of like elevating the vernacular. And I think when we're really... Well, that explains uh, Xerox party then. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think it's a big part of punk culture, too. You can make art out of whatever you have around. Yeah. So I've, I've always been really interested in that, kind of the idea that anyone can make art. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be expensive. You know, and I think especially, like, in times like we're in now, but really, you could argue any time <laughs> in the history of our country. I was say, yeah. yeah. You know, when, when there's a lot of, like, social issues going on, and, like, I think, like, artists really want to comment on that. I've always found, like, the vernacular approaches more effective you know um you know thinking about like uh like act up and um and, and you know punk design and just like these right different artists that have used advertising as a way to like make a message um so like so, ad busters would be yeah yeah ad, ad busters yeah, yeah totally yeah so i have definitely always kind of found myself more attracted to that because i am always kind of thinking about like how can like art really make a difference you know, and I and I love contemporary art, and I love kind of conceptual art and things that are kind of mysterious and oblique. But you know, if I'm trying to like really make a point, that's not going to be the approach that I take. You right. know, the one thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, when you curated the show Counterweight. Yeah, could you go in a little uh, detail about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one of those shows that kind of just fell together, kind of mm -hmm. magically. I'd been having some conversations with Sarah Bueno, who's one of the artists on the show. She's from Turkey. Yeah, you know, I just feel like we were having lots of good conversations about her art, and I thought it was really interesting. So she pulls from kind of the history of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean monuments. Her work uh, refers to things like the Code of Hammurabi and like these different like uh, Trajan's Column and these right. different things that are um, like the Roman Empire using like a column with a bunch of text on it to basically tell you know the the judeans that we we've conquered you and so we're putting this thing here that yep. has all this text that's like this is your emperor now you know and yep. she's really interested in that you know and, and growing up in turkey you could see why and we were just talking about her art one day and she was saying like i'm really starting to see this interesting thread with some of these other artists i know that are from the middle east that are women that are also using concrete a lot and we were just like oh that's interesting yeah like let's just like reach out to them and just like talk and just see what what's going on there and sure enough the more we kind of talked with each other the more we realized that everything was really about like architecture as power and um one of the artists noah haney that's in the show you know a lot of her work references like bunkers and growing up in Israel and, you know, seeing these like bunkers and knowing like, oh, like anytime now there could be like an air raid or something right. and we have to go into a bunker. So, yeah. I, and also, like I was saying earlier about being in the military, I ended up spending time in Afghanistan. So I right. think I've always been or not always. I mean, since being in Afghanistan, I feel like I've always kind of felt I don't know the best way to put this, like uh, maybe an obligation to help people from the Middle East, <laughs> you know, like having been. Not, not, um, you know, I didn't choose to be there. Right. But you would, you got immersed into the culture and you started to, uh, understand the culture on a certain level. On a certain level. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was in Afghanistan at a time, luckily, where it wasn't that dangerous. I mean, over right. the, you know, yeah, uh, there was a lull. There was, yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, over the history of that conflict, I was there at a time where it was relatively stable. It was 2005, 2006. So, like, the Taliban had been defeated. But it was, 
kind of before that they were starting to come back. So right. yeah. yeah. And I was in Kabul and, um, you know, I used to go to bazaars and, you know, we had Afghan nationals that worked on our base that I became friends with. We were right next to a Turkish compound. We were right next to like a NATO compound. So I actually became friends with some Turkish people. And so, yeah, I think part of it is just, uh, yeah, I've always kind of felt like I want to help and not hurt. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. got exposed yeah. to culture and you started mm -hmm. to really understand it. Better. Mm -hmm. I mean, totally. Yeah. So what, I think what better way, right. Yeah. Than to actually go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, one of my jobs when I was there is I was actually a bodyguard for a, a rug dealer who like taught me about like how to look at a rug and, and be able to tell like well, if it's, if it's Persian or Afghan or, right. or Pakistani, you know? Yeah. Um, Persians are usually the, the best, but I, I know I'm sure I disagree. I'm sure that I'll get into a fist fight <laughs> with someone about that um, and I'll let them win. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, they, they're, they're all beautiful, but, but in different ways and there's right. like distinct patterns where you can kind of tell where they're from. And I've always been a big history nerd as well. So, you know, when she's referencing like the Roman empire and, and, and starting to realize like, you know, she she grew up in Istanbul. Another one of the artists, uh, Jevahir Ozdogon, was from Ankara in Turkey, and then Noah being from Israel, and realizing they all are from places that were once part of the Roman Empire, and working in concrete, which is like a lot of people say that the Romans really perfected how you make concrete because they were able to like put up these uh, monuments really quickly yep. and you know so that that's you know tied into like the history of their empire you know they take over these places really quickly erect structures really quickly so like all these kind of connections between like their art the history my history um, and I also worked with some great people from um, an arts library in Baltimore called the Menial Collection mm -hmm. um, so yeah they helped curate the show as well um, they provided the space Amelia Duno, who is one of the, the people at the Menial Collection, had lived in Turkey. So, yeah, there was a lot of... It was just like one of those things where it was just like... I could see how it all just yeah. came together really quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, um, and people that all get along really well. So I think it just kind of like... That's a rarity. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and all the artists were very open to, like, the curator's ideas of, like, how to make it work, you know? Another rarity. Yeah. One of the pieces that I, I feel the most proud of, like, how it came together, Noah had this piece that we ended up putting at the bottom of a stairwell down in the basement where you could, you could like stand at the top. Yeah. It was one of my favorite pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it kind of just came out of conversations talking to her where she was like, well, I make these, these animations and I make these sculptures and I actually have this animation where the sculpture moves and we just started talking about like, you know, we'd like to have both these pieces in the show. How do we do it? What if we projected the animation on top of the sculpture? And then we just started talking about like, we've got this weird, basement what if we put it at the bottom of the basement and her, her work a lot of times kind of talks about being sort of disoriented and it it, it really came together really yeah, really no, beautifully uh, yeah it was one of my, uh, like one of those yeah mm -hmm. so before we end the interview here i wanted yes. to talk about transceiver radio yeah because uh that's where i first met you mm -hmm. was at one of your happy hour i think they called mm -hmm. it but it was seemed more of a gathering how did that curation and how did that come about yeah totally so that was actually my thesis project for my, my grad program. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you were telling me that. Yeah. I think the reason that project kind of manifested itself in that way was because I was really kind of taking grad school as an excuse to kind of try to pull all the threads of my practice together. I'm interested in music. I'm interested in archives. I'm interested in how institutions can 
be a platform for people that don't get to usually have a voice. I'm interested in the history of community radio and how community radio often has been a voice of, you know, people that don't have a voice. And, and especially in D.C., there's that's true. Yeah, been a couple of community radio stations specifically. We Act Radio that's currently active in Anacostia. Radio CPR, which was yeah. active in the Mount Pleasant area, that both were really involved in activism. And, and We Act continues to be really involved in neighborhood activism and specifically like fighting against gentrification. And, um, and then Force Cross the River with WERA. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I had to put that drop in there. Yeah. Um, but, but those two radio stations specifically, like I got to know people that worked there. You know? well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just thinking about like how beautiful is it that like, you know, I started to think about, you know, like radio stations can be an institution the way like an art museum could be an institution. But like, like a community radio station can really be like a people's institution in, in, a, in a very specific way. And just the parallels happening with the Don't Mute DC thing. And, you know, Kimone Freeman from We Act Radio is really involved in that. You know, and me growing up in Louisiana, you know, I started thinking about like, you know, what if some, you know, rich white guy moved to New Orleans and was complaining about marching bands? That's that's not cool, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. take much for them to get rid of it or find a way to get rid of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So thinking of like radio stations as like amplifiers for local culture was yeah. really important to me. And I liked the idea of like working with friends of mine from Baltimore who are, you know, maybe more in the world of contemporary art, but also are DJs and yeah. kind of have this like hybrid practice where, you know, they make physical things, but they're also DJs. Kind of encouraging them to think through, you know, what could a like a radio show as an art project be? So bringing that kind of stuff together with like more traditional kind of activist space, community radio. And so it was, it was, you know, kind of an experiment in like vernacular aesthetics and, but also it was just like a fun thing and a, yeah, just trying to bring a lot of things that I was thinking about together, you know, activism, folk art, for a lack of a better word, you know, right. pop music, right. contemporary art, relational aesthetics, you know, using, you know, making a gallery like a really like welcoming public space, you know, yeah. we had, we had couches in there. I mean, that was a big reason. Yeah. There was too many people in there. I couldn't sit on a couch. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a big reason we had those happy hours was to like encourage people to come and just, this is a space that's always open right now. We're giving away free drinks, but you know, this is a fun space where we're doing these shows all the time yeah. and come back tomorrow when there's less people and sit on a couch and, and you could <laughs> and hang out for three hours and listen, just listen to whoever's, you know, making, yeah. Unfortunately, you know. I didn't know that I could have gone back oh, well, the next day. You know, I just didn't I'm sorry. know. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you could have. I could have. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. we were and if open. You do the project again. I yeah. know that for the next time. Yeah, there's there's some things percolating about maybe how that project could live on, but no, yeah, no, I, nothing I can report yet. Like the yeah, my my first experience actually with pirate radio was when I was staying in in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And there was people were a buzz about this particular uh, uh, radio station. I was like, okay, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And so I went to a party, and uh, they had radios in all the rooms. And I was like, oh, what's going on here? It's like, well, this is the radio station. This is Pyre Radio. It's like, what? No, you can't do that. It's like, well, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, just having that experience was just it's just a raw kind of thing. Anyone played anything they wanted to. It was just on all day and all night. And then it, sometimes they just would someone. The only time it went off air is when someone unplugged the thing by accident. There's your little transmitters. That that was an eye-opening first time, and since then have not had that kind of experience with pirate radio. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't encourage pirate radio, by the way. <clears throat> uh, I, I do. <laughs> you were, just like others, when I asked them this question, kind of <laughs> a little scared. It's not a scary question, but uh, what advice would you give your past self uh -huh. and to other artists? Yeah, um, keep doing it. I think is the the biggest uh, piece of advice because it's 
We live in a culture that doesn't value art as much as it should. And I think it's really easy to be discouraged. I, I graduated from undergrad when the, the last economic crisis was happening. So, you know, I, I got a, a degree in, in design, something like a graphic design gig. That's no problem. Yeah. And, and I definitely struggled for a few years before I can really, you know, make, even make ends meet doing right. it. So, you know, during those times, it was easy to get discouraged and feel like, well, maybe I shouldn't even bother with this like art thing, <laughs> you know? And I think for a long time also, I was discouraged about ever being really like involved in like a gallery scene or museums, just mostly because like, you know, I love Austin and Austin has an amazing music scene. Yeah. And it does. It, it definitely has an amazing music scene, but their, their gallery scene and their museum scene is, it's not that big and it's very isolated. I mean, there's some great like independent galleries there, but you know, when you're involved in the scene there, you, you feel really disconnected from, you know, what's going on in New York or LA, you know? So I, I think I just kind of got to this point where it's like, well, you know, never going to, be involved <laughs> in, you know, the art world, quote unquote, you know, right. yeah. you know, and sometimes I would allow myself to kind of check out and not actively pursue opportunities until eventually I realized, well, no, no, screw it. Like I'm, I, I can't, I can do this, you know? And yeah. so I was like, well, I'm going to move to the East coast. I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to do it. And you can. So that's, I think that's my encouragement to, to myself and to young artists is like, you can do it. Yeah. You know, you might have to have a couple jobs, but you can do it and don't, don't feel like you can't, you know? Uh, if you got to move, you got to move and, and never stop making stuff, you know, and, 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 and have, and have a broad idea of like what, what it is you can make. I dabbled in all sorts of stuff, did more commercial graphic design. I did kind of wild, wacky participatory art kind of events. Spin I was in records, spin records. I was in bands and, you know, at the time I was thinking like, these are separate things, but the more I did it, the more I was like, these aren't separate things. They're all connected and, and you can invent ways to connect them. And that that's really where the art starts to happen is when you're starting to be like, okay, where did these passions come together and how can I, you know, and I think that's really what led me to doing more kind of curatorial work. Cause it's like, a way you can bring a lot of things together. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for doing the interview. Absolutely. And, uh, thank you for having me. This no has been problem. fun. Thank you again. I want to say thank you to Joshua for taking his time for doing the interview. If you want to learn more information about Joshua, you can go to his website at joshuagamma.com or you can go to his Instagram page at Gamma Time. You can go to Artbox's website at artboxdnv.com. Or you can go to our Instagram page at ArtboxDNV. To hear past episodes, you can go to the website or you can go to Mixcloud at mixcloud.com backslash ArtboxInTheDNV. Until next time, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.